Would you pray with me once again? Father, thank you for your word, which reveals yourself to us, speaks to us. And Lord, would you remove the, the temporal distractions that, uh, that cloud our vision of seeing you this morning? Lord, open our eyes that we may behold you and may behold wondrous things out of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And please open your Bible to Matthew 8. Matthew 8, and this morning we continue our series through the book of Matthew. And just to give you a lay of the land, this morning we're going to be looking at that two different scenes that Matthew gives us, and then considering our response to these th- scenes. As you turn to Matthew 8, in, in Matthew eight eighteen, Matthew writes that when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And last week we reflected on the fact that, that Jesus led his disciples into this boat, into the storm, so that he might put on display the utter uniqueness of his power and authority over all things. There indeed is no one like him. And after Jesus calmed the storm, Matthew eight twenty seven records how the disciples, the men, marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. The disciples, they, they marveled. They were awestruck, dumbfounded. They were shocked. What sort of man is this? That's going to be kind of our, our guiding question this morning as we look to God's word together. What sort of man is this? But first we come to scene one. Scene one. No sooner do they all get off the boat than this question is answered from a most unexpected source. Look at verse 28 of chapter 8, Matthew eight twenty-eight. And when he came to the other side, Jesus came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us, before the time. We'll stop there for a second. Two men, two men possessed by demons come to Jesus. Now, while there may be questions that you have just about this, as far as we've gotten, two demon-possessed men, that's not Matthew's point, and we're not going to spend much time on there. But these two fierce men, so fierce that Matthew records that no one would go near them, but look what happens here. While these two men came to Jesus, it might be better to say that Jesus came to them. You remember who got into that boat, who went across the sea? Jesus, in fact, purposefully left the crowds, led his disciples into the boat, into the storm, and now arrives at this most unusual and treacherous destination. Notice how Matthew, both here and throughout our text this morning, has completely dropped the disciples out of view. Verse 28 doesn't say... When they came to the other side, which we would kind of expect, it says, when he came to the other side. Now, we may wonder what the disciples were thinking as they arrived in this region on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's an area dominated by Gentiles. We may may wonder how their, their lesson of trust and faith during the storm is working now that they have these fierce demon possessed men approaching them. I wonder that. But while we may wonder about these things, Matthew's not concerned about them at all. 
He prioritizes one thing, answering the question, what sort of man is this? And as one commentator said, while the men in the boat are doubting what manner of man this is, that even the winds and the sea obey him, the demons come to tell them. And so that man, Jesus, the one who just calmed the storm, gets off the boat and these terrifying demon-possessed men come to him and they themselves are terrified. They come and cry out to Jesus asking him two remarkable questions. First they ask in verse 29, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? They recognize that, that in Jesus is one who is completely other than them. What have you to do with us? There's nothing in common between us. They're taken aback. They're afraid. Why are you here? But look how the demons address Jesus there in that question. O Son of God. Here there is this recognition by the demons that not only is Jesus nothing like them, but that he is the very Son of God. He is the one who comes with authority over all things. He has authority over nature as he calms the storm. He has authority over the demonic world. And throughout the history of the church and even to today, there are those who argue that Jesus, while a great man, was not God. But here we have the demons, his enemies, testifying to the reality of the divinity of Jesus. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? He indeed is God of God. Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. If the demons so recognize Jesus, so must we also. Second, the demons ask, have you come here to torment us before the time? Now these demons know something about time, and they know better than most of us. They realize that all of time will culminate with the coming and the victory of Jesus Christ the King. And Scripture testifies to this coming judgment and victory from beginning to end. In Genesis 3.15, we get this, this promise of the one who is to come that will crush the serpent's head. And they recognize that now, with Jesus on the scene, this is the beginning of the end. The demons recognize Jesus as God, and as an acknowledgment of his authority, they then they plead with him. They beg him for permission to move on to their next evil deed. Wild stuff going on here. I mean, you think about Job and, and the court that, that the devil has with God, asking him, can I go and torment Job? They're asking for permission to move on to their next evil deed. Let's pick back up in verse 30. Matthew adds this narrative comment, Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. So off, I mean, there's these demon-possessed men, and then off in the distance, there's this herd of pigs. Mark tells us there were about 2,000 pigs out there. And they're feeding, which is just a normal thing that pigs would do. There's, there's all is right in the world for these pigs. There's no trouble here for them. And verse 31 says, And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Now so great... So comprehensive is the power of Christ over all things that the demons come and beg him to allow them to go into the pigs. It's a, it's a foregone conclusion that they're going to be cast out. 
It's as if they know that Jesus is going to do this, but what they need is permission to do what's in their mind to do next. Now, now remember who we are talking about in these demons. These, these are the demons that are, are possessing these men, and these men are fierce, so fierce that no one will come near them. Yet here they are begging that Jesus would let them go into the pigs. Now, who has power in this situation? Who is in control of this situation? Jesus. Verse 32 says, And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Now, kids, we don't have pigs in every Sunday sermon, but we have pigs today. Yet, sadly, they are all dead now. They have drowned in the waters. Now, now, why the pigs? Like, what do we make of this? How do we think about their destruction and Jesus' role in this? Now, there's a part of this that's, that's it's hard for us to answer, simply because it's not Matthew's point in the story at all. He's not writing in the age of animal rights. He's not writing to an audience who's thinking, oh, what about the bacon? He's writing to a Jewish audience, and they saw pigs as, as unclean. They were, they were not thinking about the bacon or the ham or the pulled pork or any of that. He's also not writing to give us an explanation and description of this kind of spiritual warfare. How is it that demons are, are wanting to possess pigs? Clearly, he didn't think his readers would have much of a problem understanding this or understanding why all of this was happening. It's just not Matthew's point. But there are still parts of this that are, that are difficult. And at a certain point, the death of the pigs fits into all of the questions that we might have about evil in this world. All the questions we have about why. Why did this happen? Why sickness? Why storms that destroy things? Why death? Why injustice? And all of these are part of living life on this side of the new heavens and the new earth, on this side of the fall. It's often unexplainable. It's confusing. It can be disheartening. But what we can know as that there is one who is in control, Jesus Christ the King. And ultimately, this is Matthew's point. Matthew's point isn't about the pigs, nor is it to point out that the pigs died. His point in this whole story is to demonstrate who Jesus is, to demonstrate who has power and authority. And, and that's what the pigs are called out to do. They're there off in the distance on that hillside feeding so that Jesus might demonstrate his power. Now think about these demon-possessed men. Men, they've been driven mad by their possession. They hear these voices going back and forth. It's kind of this out-of-body experience as they hear the demons talking to Jesus. And then suddenly, out of the fogginess of their minds that they've been living in, probably for years, they see this herd of pigs on the hill. And then they see the pigs rush down into the water and drown. Now, while for us this might be an unfortunate end to the pigs, for these men, what an encouragement this would have been. Because these demons who have possessed them, who have ruled over them, for days and days and months and months and probably years and years, they're no longer in them. They have been delivered. Here they saw with their own eyes that they, in fact, had been delivered from their demon possession. But notice they're not the only observers of what just happened. In verse 33, Matthew introduces us to to some new characters that we might not have realized were on the scene. Look at verse 33. The herdsmen fled. There they are, the herdsmen. 
there were guys out there taking care of the pigs. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Now the guys in charge of the pigs, they're so taken aback by all that has just taken place that they cannot get back into the town fast enough. They, they rush to tell everyone everything that has happened. Now think about it. These guys had one job. You had one job. Take care of the pigs. You better be sure that as they ran back to that town, they wanted to make sure everyone knew that it was not their fault that all of the pigs are now dead. But that's not all. That's not all they wanted people to know. Matthew tells us how these guys were a long way off, off in the distance, Do you think that may have had something to do with these two demon-possessed men? Maybe that's why they were so far away. These fierce demon-possessed men, so fierce that no one would pass that way. There they are out there. They see what's taking place. They see all their pigs die. They run back to the city, and they wanted to make sure, not just that everyone knew about the pigs, but especially, Matthew writes, about the fact that these two terrifying men were no longer possessed. But how does the city respond? Matthew begins in verse 34. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. Now stop there. So far, so good, right? All the city came out to meet Jesus. On the outskirts of their town live these demon-possessed men who terrorize everyone who come near. And they have been delivered. No doubt they probably had these two demon-possessed men. They probably had family in this town. And for some in this town, their, their brother or their son that's been set free. They've been given new life. It's, it's almost a story of resurrection for them. What a time for celebration. But first, they must come out and meet the man who has done this marvelous thing. So they rush out of the city to meet him. But this is where the story takes a surprising turn. Verse 34, And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. The people, all the city, rush out to meet Jesus. And notice, notice that where the demons begged him that they might be sent into the pigs, the people of the city begged him. The same verb. They begged him to leave their region. Might Matthew want us to see something demonic here? Here we go to Matthew's point in all of this. When confronted with the unmatched power and unrivaled authority of Jesus Christ, how do we respond? The disciples saw this power and authority in the boat, and they asked, what sort of man is this? They marveled at him. The demons, they knew what sort of man this was, the Son of God, so they they pled with him for permission to do what they wanted to do. But something very different happens here with these people. And the reason is very straightforward and can be summed up in one word. Pigs. What the loss of the pigs exposed was that the people of this city really valued something other than a savior. Here's a man who has power over dominions, who has authority to deliver, who came as savior. But the people of this city prefer pigs. They preferred swine over their savior, as, as several commentators like to say. While they could have celebrated the, the miraculous deliverance of these two men, 
While they could have asked Jesus to deliver others or heal more ailments and set more people free, their concern and focus was on what they lost. So they beg Jesus to leave. Certainly the pigs were their livelihood. But here is Jesus, the Son of God, putting on display the power of his coming kingdom. But their pigs are more important to them. They're pigs. So upset are they about their, the loss of their, their little wealth that they beg him to leave. These are sobering words that the people begged him to leave. If only they recognized what sort of man this was. And in the very next story, Matthew makes that even more explicit. So let's look at this next scene, scene number two. Matthew writes 9-1, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Now this, this city, his own city, it's not Nazareth, it's actually Capernaum that he's referring to, the town along the Sea of Galilee where Jesus spent so much time in his ministry. And verse 2 says, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, Matthew, he doesn't tell us anything about the people that bring this paralytic. He just says that some people brought him. Paralytic is one, one who can't walk. Some people brought him. But there's some other guys who tell us something about this paralytic. Mark and Luke both tell us about this paralytic and the guys that brought him. And they include some additional details in their recounting of this event that you may remember. Mark says this in Mark 2.4, that when these men came, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. This is the faith that Matthew says Jesus saw. Jesus saw their faith. Now, all those details are beside the point for Matthew, so he just leaves them out. What Matthew wants to get to, what he's most interested in, is to present Jesus. And so he goes right to the comments of Jesus to this paralytic. And what remarkable, incredible, stunning comments they are. Jesus starts, take heart, my son. Now consider this moment for this man. Put yourself in his shoes for a second. Now his friends, they've carried him to see Jesus. And all along the way, his imagination and hopes are running wild because he's heard stories, word is spread about the many people that Jesus has healed of their diseases and afflictions. No doubt he knew some of these people. And so here he is with this, this opportunity to come see Jesus. And he's holding out hope that, that just maybe, maybe Jesus might be able to do something for him. And in the, in the paralytic's wildest imaginations, his greatest dreams, he thought, you know, maybe, maybe, if anybody can do it, maybe Jesus can heal me. Maybe he can heal me with a word. Maybe I will be able to walk again. Maybe he'll say to me, your legs are healed. And as they arrive and as he's lowered down through the ceiling... As Jesus sees him and, and compassion just radiates from his face, trepidation and hope, they're, they're rising up in this young man's heart. And Jesus addresses him and says, take heart, my son. Now, the, the language that Jesus uses here is, is very 
informal and very caring. It's almost like uh, in a soccer game, I help coach my kids' teams. It's like if one of the little kids gets hurt, ball hits their face, and I come over and just offer a reassuring, it's all right, buddy. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. Like, you'll be okay. Take heart. Be of good cheer. These are remarkable words coming from the Son of God. Stunning words coming from the Son of God. But what comes next is even more shocking, more stunning. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. When the best the paralytic could ever imagine was rise up and walk, Jesus tells him something else. And that something else is so much better. And isn't this so often the case? Isn't this normally the case with Jesus? We have our ideas about our needs. We have our desires and our hopes and our dreams. But what Jesus offers us in himself is incomparably better than anything we could imagine. As we just sang, he's the greatest treasure of our longing souls. And his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And the one thing that we can be sure of is this. The way of Jesus is always better than we can ask or than we can think. Better than we can imagine. Jesus tells the man, your sins are forgiven. And notice he doesn't say your sins have been forgiving, forgiven as if, as if this is something that's been atoned for, something that's already taken place, that, but that your sins are forgiven. They're being forgiven right now in this moment, just on the basis of his own authority. Jesus says your sins are forgiven. He ignores the physical need of this man and instead gives him the gift of forgiveness. The one who has the power to calm the storm, the one who has the power to deliver the demon-possessed, the one who has the power to heal the paralytic is the same one who has the power to forgive sins. And brothers and sisters, what a comfort and encouragement this is to us. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, Is there anything in the world that is worthy to to be compared with the incalculable mercy of sin forgiven? Is there anything that can be compared to that? What if I am poor, yet I am forgiven? What if I am sick, yet I am forgiven? What if I shall soon die, yet I am forgiven? Our sin being forgiven, the very sting of death is drawn, and therefore we can sing, thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for his grace, his mercy that forgives sins. Though our sins there are many. His mercy is more. But here the story gets even more interesting. Verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Now Matthew assumes that his readers know why scribes would say, This man is blaspheming. Since only God has the authority to forgive sins. And here Jesus is clearly taken upon himself this same authority. The scribes are really bothered by this. How could this man say this thing? Because they view Jesus just as another Galilean. For him to assume the authority of God was blasphemy. But notice they didn't say any of this to Jesus. They were just saying this amongst themselves. Look at verse 4, chapter 9. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? 
So Jesus seeing the scribes, there doesn't necessarily need to be anything supernatural happening here. It could have been, but it doesn't need to be. He sees the scribes talking among themselves. And he cuts to the quick and gets the real issue. And he addresses their hearts. For this is where the trouble lies. He presents them with this rhetorical question. Which thing is easier to say? Now, Jesus is not asking which is easier to do, forgive sins or heal the paralytic. He's asking which is easier to say. And it's certainly easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because those hearing it, they've got no way to verify that. They've got no way to prove whether or not it is true. But if Jesus says in a crowd of people to a paralytic, rise up and walk, then everyone around will know right away whether he's a fraud or whether he speaks the truth. They'll know if he really has the power and authority to heal. And if he has that power and authority to say the harder thing and then do it, he also has the power to forgive. So Jesus wants to demonstrate that he can say the harder thing in order to show that he can do the harder thing. Look at verse 6, chapter 9. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. You know, it might be easy to see this as a, as a miracle story. But it's not, not so much a miracle story as it's a story where a miracle is used to demonstrate the power of Jesus to forgive sins. Jesus says, I'm going to heal this man so that you can know that I really do have authority to forgive sins. Jesus agrees with the scribes on this point that only God can forgive sins. They were right. He doesn't challenge that premise. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus is not saying that anyone can do this. Only God can do this. But Jesus is demonstrating something. He's demonstrating that indeed... I am God. The crowds that are gathered around, they're taken aback by what has just taken place. Sure, what Jesus did in healing the paralytic was remarkable, but what he just claimed in forgiving his sins was even more stunning. Look at verse 8. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, unlike the people on the other side of the sea, these people marvel at Jesus with a reverent fear as they behold his unmatched power, his unrivaled authority. And they praise God that this power, the power he possesses in heaven, that God possesses in heaven, has in some measure and in some way been brought down to earth. And it draws them to worship. What sort of man is this? Now, while those bystanders did not recognize this in full, Matthew intends for his readers to recognize exactly who this man is. That's what Matthew's been doing since the beginning of his gospel. This man is the, the son of Abraham, the son of David. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the son of man prophesied from of old by Daniel, the one who appears and is given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the Son of Man. And this is who he is. What sort of man is this? He is the hope of the nations. 
And in him, God's gracious reign has come to earth. He is the one who has come to save his people from their sins. So we have these two scenes, and we see these two responses from the crowd. And in conclusion, how will you respond to the coming of this man? How will you answer the question, what sort of man is this? We see these two different responses, neither of which are quite right. One is, one is terrible. The other one has some good things in it, but it's not quite right. The first sees Jesus. They get, to, they get a glimpse of who he is. But the world and their pleasures, they're too important to them. So they beg him to leave. The second crowd sees Jesus. They get a glimpse of who he is. But instead of leaving all to follow him, they just want to marvel from a distance. Because notice that, that Matthew, he doesn't say it was the disciples that are saying these things, that are afraid and, and give praise to God. He doesn't say that the scribes say these things. It's just the crowds, those people that are just kind of off on the sides. And the problem in both responses is the same. Their hearts are still set on this world. Their hearts are still set on that which is passing away. And you see, Jesus... Jesus wants our hearts. We saw this all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus cares about is our hearts, not just our attention. He wants our affection, not just our knowledge. And of all of characters that we looked at today, the demons were the ones that had the very best idea of who Jesus was, who Jesus is. But in spite of how Jesus reveals himself again and again, the bystanders, they're unwilling to give him their hearts. And some are simply content to stand and watch, while others beg him to leave. Now, not too long ago, I had a friend who was in this place. And this individual, they saw God in his word. They considered who he was. They appreciated what he'd done. They were clear on the points of the gospel. But there reached a point where this person recognized that following Jesus could and would come at a cost. There were certain things that, that we might live for, that we might hope for, that we might desire and pursue, that just like those pigs drowning in the sea, those hopes and desires and dreams might have to go and drown if we are to follow Jesus. And sadly, at this point, in, at this time, this friends, they, they said it's too costly. They were like those who saw the power of Jesus and begged him to leave. And this person, like so many others, and, and like we can be prone to do as we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, we can view the world around us as if it's all there is. And this idea leaves us holding on to this life and this world as if it can meet our deepest needs and fulfill our greatest longings. I, I was reading something this past week, and, and the author was talking about this strange planet we live on called modern medicine. And what modern medicine, for, it, for all its gifts and benefits, one of the things that it's done for us is it's cultivated in us this sense that our greatest enemies are sickness and death. But these aren't our greatest enemies. This is a lie of the devil that this world is all there is. Christians are those who, who set their minds on things that are above where Christ is. 
They set their mind on that which is eternal. They are those who recognize that all the joys and sorrows of this world, they're not worth being dominated by. They pale in comparison with the glory of who Jesus Christ is. So, brothers and sisters, may we have a grand and glorious and all-encompassing view of the glory and the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. But not just that. He is the one who has power and authority. He's also the one who comes in mercy and grace. He's the one who comes to the paralytic. And while this paralytic only hopes that he might rise up and walk, Jesus tells him, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the same is true for you today if you look to Jesus and put your trust in him, as so many of you have. Commenting on on the passage of the crowd who saw their pigs drown and came out and begged Jesus to leave, George Whitfield writes this. He says, The city was so grieved for the loss of a little wealth that it came and begged Jesus to depart. They did not want his company. They preferred a few poor swine before the company of Christ, a few worldly goods, a little pleasure or anything, rather than Christ. Part with Christ before anything. But one who is sensible of the love of Christ will part with all, rather than with the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we be those who are ready and willing to part with all for the sake of knowing Christ. May God give his grace to be those who are sensible of his love, who are grateful for his grace, who marvel at his mercy. May we be those who know all that we have in him. And may we be those who cling to him as our hope and our salvation, for certainly there is indeed no one like him. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word which speaks to us, which reveals yourself to us in your son. Thank you for the the power and authority that you put on display in the text we look at today. And Lord, may we marvel at who you are. May we be stunned at your mercy and your grace. May we not be like those of the city who, who came out and begged Jesus to live because so great was the cost of having him around. Lord, may we be will- those who are willing to depart with all for your sake. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.